to the May 2019 edition of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, your host, and today is a kind of graduation address to my religion, education, and activism class at Agnes Scott College. We were fortunate to have the co-founder of Project South, Jerome Scott, uh, with us, and he talked about how life experiences shaped him as an activist. So he told us his activist educator story and asked us, what kind of world is it going to be and what is our role going to be in it? So he gives us a direction in terms of organizing and activism, the role of technology, and in the end, optimism and hope. So join me for a session with Jerome Scott. All right, I want to welcome today to the podcast uh, Jerome Scott, who is a longtime activist and organizer and creative being in the world of uh, human rights and civil rights uh, and social justice. He's the co-founder of uh, Project South and was their director for many years, uh, has written many articles and also participated in popular education workbooks um, that are used uh, internationally by social justice movements. Um, he was on the planning committee for the U.S. Social Forum. He has uh, been part of a lot of radical groups and I think this country has gone come as far as it has come because of people like Jerome and he's going to share his story as an activist educator with us. So join me in welcoming Jerome Scott. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being here. Well, I appreciate you inviting me and you know it's always good to talk to young people when you're my age. Keeps the blood circulating and uh, mind as sharp as it can be within the context of being as old as I am. I'm, I'm young, actually. I'm only 73. So there you go. Um, the reason I asked you what was on your mind is because I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about just the both the immediate future and the long-range future. And I wanted to ask you what was on your mind to see if you were also thinking about the future. And all of your answers uh, were reflective of thinking about the future. You know, climate change, uh, racism, white supremacy, Brexit, future, all future. You know, and, and um, what, you know, as I've been thinking about that lately, I've been thinking, how did I get here? How did I get to where I am? And if you were to ask me about my life, I would say that my life revolved around three or four critical decisions. Sometimes I thought of them as critical, but most of the time I made the decision based on the information before me and not thinking about the consequences of that decision or the, even the, you know, the unexpected complications of, of that decision. And 
I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation with you about how you think about the future by giving you an example of one of the decisions I made in my life that really fundamentally changed everything about my life. And of course, I didn't know that when I made the decision, but when I look back on it, it, it's very, it was a very critical decision. And, and um, try to use that as an example to find out from you, how, what do you think about the future? And what kind of decisions are you making that you think might affect that future that you're thinking? Now I think about it from the standpoint of just a vision of what, a vision of the future. What, what kind of world is it going to be? And what do I have to do to be a part of that future in a very positive way, both positive outcomes for myself and positive contributions to that world? Um, when I was 16, I graduated from high school. And immediately, I grew up in Detroit, by the way. And it's, I, that's important because uh, when I grew up in Detroit, I'm talking about 1961, 62, Detroit was a booming city, a booming economy. You know, you could very easily uh, go to the uh, auto plant or a rubber plant or a steel plant in Detroit and get a job that you could raise a family on. So that's one thing to think about when you're thinking about your future is do those jobs really exist anymore? That one person in the family could get it and raise the family. Um, but my decision, I graduated from high school, I got a job, and I immediately moved out of my, my mother's house. I, my mother was a single parent. And I immediately moved out of her house because I felt like I was too restricted in her house. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I was out of high school. I was working. I should be able to do that. And so it didn't take long at all. Within a month or two, my, I was the only person at my job that had an apartment. And so people would gather at my apartment, particularly on the weekend, to have some fun and talk stuff and whatever. Eventually, it developed into a real crazy spot. You know, people started gambling. I had an older brother, five years older than me. He found out about it. And he came over and said, oh, man, this is a gold mine. You got all these people, as soon as they get paid, they come over here to uh, you know, gamble and, and just be around. I think we could make some money doing this. And you know, so my brother, he was a criminal already. And so thinking about doing criminal things was right in his alley. <laughs> and so this went on for about another month. And then I began to realize that this was not a very good place to be in. I started thinking about the future. And I started thinking, if I stay in this situation, there's probably only two things that's going to happen. Either I'll get busted and go to jail, or people will be here doing what they're not supposed to do, and there'll be an eruption, and I might get killed. Those were the two things that weighed on me about the future. And so I went, I, I, I went and talked to my mother, because my idea was that um, 
the thing that I was the most worried about was the environment that I was in, that I wouldn't be able to break out of those claws of that environment of criminality. You know, even though I was working and I had enough money, the temptation was just too big. And I told my mother all that, and she said, okay, well, what are you going to do? And I said, the only thing I know to change my environment in a positive way is to join the military. You know, in this 1963, um, my, you know, I'm 17 years old now. I can't join the military without my mother signing for me because you have to be 18 to join on your own. And so my mother has to agree with this. And so she said to me, okay, you go to the military. What makes you think that's going to change your life? Are you going to stay there? I said, no, I'm going to use the military to get an education. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to try to figure out how to do something with myself. And she said, if that's your goal, then go for it. So I made the decision to join the military at 17 years old in 1963. Now, neither my mother nor I knew uh, the whole picture. You know, we, we looked at this side of the picture, my personal side of the picture, and it seemed like a very valuable thing to do. Once I joined the military, one of the, when I got to boot camp, one of the first things someone asked me was, hey man, you know there's a war going on in Vietnam. And I go, war? No, man, I don't know nothing about no war. He said, yeah, we all gonna end up in Vietnam, man. I don't know why they didn't tell you when they recruited you, because that's where we gonna end up. And then I began to think, wow, this decision had, was more than I anticipated. I didn't have all the information. I began to look at myself and say, man, what kind of fool are you? You, you were going to have a life where you had enough money, you could do what you wanted to do. You might go to jail, you might die, but you know, you got both sides of that thing. You end up in Vietnam, where you, you ain't got but one side, you know? And that, that decision, you know, it really did weigh on me until I went to Vietnam. So, you know, three, two years in the military, two and a half years in the military, I get orders to go to Vietnam, just like my brother recruit told me I would, you know? And, and then it really hit me. I'm going to Vietnam, and I don't have any understanding of why there's a war going on, or really even that there was a war going on when I made that fateful decision. Now, obviously, it turned out all right for me. I'm here. You know, 50 years later, I'm still here and still talking. But what that decision set in motion changed my entire thought pattern because when I, was, when I ended up in Vietnam, I began to think about why am I here, you know, what am I fighting for, what happens, you know, if I don't get out of here. I mean, that, of course, was the, 
the biggest thing on my mind. And the secondary thing was, what if these people, what if this war just drives me crazy like it has done so many people? Because many people in the military was just so overwhelmed by war that, you know, they couldn't tolerate it. And they came back really messed up. You know, a lot of my friends came back really messed up. And so I thought about all that and then decided, okay, the decision is made, you're here, how do you make the best of it? How do you survive Vietnam with your mind intact? And how do you go back home and look at this experience as, yes, a grave miscalculation in making a decision, but on the other hand, what can you learn from it? And, and that's the way I proceeded to, to stay in Vietnam for 13 months and survive. You know, and I began to think about the meaning of concepts. Like, all you could hear in the military is patriotism, you know, and chain of command and, you know, do the right thing. And I began to think, well, what really is the right thing? You know, and what does patriotism mean? Does that mean that some kid from Detroit who don't know anything about anything will die in Vietnam for a cause that he don't know anything about? Or does that mean that this kid is going to learn in Vietnam and come back and try to educate other people about what decisions mean? And so with that, my question to you is, how are you thinking about the future? And how are you thinking about making decisions about where you're going to be, you know, say 10 years from now? What is the climate going to look like? What is Britain going to look like with or without Brexit? You know, what is the race relations going to look like? And how are we going to have an effect on those concepts that are positive? And how do we take negative situations and try to turn them into positives? So what do y'all think about the future? I think recently all the things that we hear about climate change and the very doomsday timeline that is again being laid out has changed how I think about the future quite a bit. Because for quite a long time it was, you know, I need to go set my retirement fund stable careers can last for this long, and I'll retire, you know, X, Y, Z here. Um, and then sort of realizing probably my life is going to look quite a bit different than how my parents did because of these external factors. And the way that I'm planning probably doesn't reflect my, the reality of the planet in 50 mm -hmm. years, 60 years, 70 years. So it's scary. And I think we're, a lot of us are trying to adjust our expectations. Adjust your expectations, all right. You know, one of the principles of popular education is that you have to make sure that as many people as possible put their two cents in the middle of the table. So that we all, 
You know, we all might have just come with two cents, right? But if we all put our two cents in the middle of the table, we can all walk away with 20 cents. You know, and so that's one of the rules of popular education. And y'all been studying popular education. So y'all going to have to come on. Put your two cents in. You know, like I could go into a master's program and get all the certifications I need, come out, and the arts program is just not a thing anymore. Mm -hmm. They just don't exist. And my, my whole entire career is obsolete. So, like, it's one of those things where it's like you have to have a backup plan, and then, like, even if you, that doesn't work, you have to, like, make sure you're ready for anything that's thrown at you. Very true. Your generation. Yeah, but okay. also like some like the older generation, not the full, but like I feel like there's some older people I've been influenced by that like this generation has really like looked to them and be like, okay, we're gonna keep following it. So it's a lot of like I guess like unsure how it's gonna change. Like I know like like the next generation of kids are gonna be raised differently, really different, and that's really exciting, but also like terrifying in a way because we don't know like as a as a state of climate change how it's gonna impact everything. Yep. 50 50 chance. 50 50 chance. <laughs> we will either have countries with walls or borderless societies. Yeah. Now, a 50 50 chance, that's an interesting thing. I was, that just made me think what did I think my chances of advancement in the world was in the 60s? I actually thought it was more like 80%. That I would be, that I would live better than my parents did. You know, if all the signs around me pointed to that. But to hear people talk now about 50 50, that's interesting. I feel like honestly, 50 50 is kind of generous. 50 50 is generous. Okay. Oh yeah. Around, like in our in our neighborhood where the those two houses were built, they were like what six something, six hundred. A million in Decatur. Yeah. Like, yeah. Insane. You're gonna, like, yeah. I'm I want to live where my parents live, but I'm probably gonna have to move somewhere where it's more affordable. But like my plan was to you know stay here in Decatur. Hmm. But now it's like. It's not going to happen. Like, if I'm looking around and being like, literal, a teacher cannot afford anything in here. <laughs> That's why most of the teachers I had in high school drove to work. Yeah. They were from somewhere else. <laughs> so it's like. I think it's really interesting how you guys are saying that your situation compared to your parents is a little worse, I guess, because for me it's like way better. My parents came mm -hmm. from Mexico mm -hmm. and they were like facing poverty. They didn't go to school, they had to come here. So it's like. Very interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah, everything is relative now. Yeah. You grew up someplace else. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Anybody else? I think um, your generation is my parents' generation. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I've heard my mum say, she talks about, I mean, and this is specific to England, but just how much harder it is now to get work, you know, to pay the bills and things like that. She has a retirement from being a teacher. Sorts of things that just aren't really available anymore. She's pointed out to me many times how much harder it is now because of you know overpopulation and less opportunity. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm not the Mexican scenario, as it's the other way around. But yeah, yeah, and she's always saying it's a good thing that you're you're not here because everything's kind of going to shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to shit. <laughs> All right. It's, uh, people that hadn't spoken? Go ahead. Okay, so in, in, in my scenario, the thing that, what, that I didn't take into account in my decision making was Vietnam. And 62, 63, it was still on a low level. It wasn't all in the news like what, when we hear about it now. Uh, today, I think the one thing that's in the back going on that people don't think about when they make their decisions is something that we see and embrace every day. And that is the technological revolution. I mean, we see it, we live it, we embrace it. But when we think about the future, for the most part, that, that piece is not necessarily involved in our decision making. And that's important to me because What's happening in the technical revolution is affecting each and every one of our lives every day. And not only is it affecting our lives, it's also affecting the future. I mean, if you think about it, this whole question of jobs, you know, and the future of jobs, I mean, we all know that capitalism fundamentally works on the premise that there's work available and there are people available to get that work, and there are people who own stuff that needs work done on it. So, you know, there's an employer and an employee. That's the fundamental basic building block of capitalism. But everything we hear about technology says that that fundamental building block of capitalism is being disrupted. I mean, just think about what's going to happen when they perfect uh, driverless cars to our economy. Just 
just that one thing. I mean, just think about the role that artificial intelligence is having on the production of everything. I mean, even the ability to deal with climate change, you know, I always think that we got all these great minds, and when I look at how the research and development money in this country is being spent, it's something like 70% of it being spent on the military, on destruction, when we got problems like climate change that brain power is not being concentrated on, or even immigrations. I mean, you can't tell me that we can't figure out a solution to immigration in this world, because it's a worldwide problem. It's not, it ain't just the U.S. trying to deal with this question. And the reason that both of these issues, climate change and immigration, is, is so big is because this revolution in technology has had an effect on both of those critical issues. You know, the second main thing about capitalism is that we all know that everything is driven by profit. If it can make a profit, we'll do it. That's why they won't stop using carbon-based um, energy, because it's profitable. And if it's profitable, I don't care what it's doing to the environment, we got to make that money now. And we can worry about the environment later. And the same thing is true for immigrations. You know, why is it that immigrations has blew up all over the world all of a sudden? Well, mainly because this transition that the world is going through is affecting low-income, low-development countries more adversely than it did the developed countries. And it's forcing people to try to move out. Like, this is a really good example. You know, she's going to live better than her parents. And we all are not, according to our analysis. You know, and the reason is that she, you know, maybe not directly, but the fact that populations are being forced from the developing world into the developed world, you know, you, have a you get a different perspective, but that's being sped up by the process of implementing high technology into the productive process. So yeah. They start new factories, but they don't hire but a quarter of the number of people that they used to hire, you know, because automation and robotics do most of the heavy lifting in production anymore. So although, so I guess my point is, one of the things that we have to really critically try to figure out is what are the things that I'm not thinking about that's affecting my future, that if I don't think about it, my calculations will all be messed up. You know, I won't, I won't be able to achieve what I think I achieve because I didn't calculate how this whole revolution in technology is affecting every institution in society. Because everything is changing, and therefore every institution has to change. And those changes are going to affect and are affecting each and every one of us. But Jerome, you've seen the, the shift of using technology for social change mm -hmm. and for, for activist movements oh, yeah. and for bringing people together. Yeah. You know, the Occupy movement, the 
U.S. Social Forum, World Social Forum. Right. But the very first worldwide event that was um, mobilized around uh, with high technology was the Zapatistas mm. in 1993, 94. You know, all of a sudden the whole world knew that there was a part of Mexico that had been taken over and controlled by local people and they were trying to institute a different form of organization. You know, and everybody knew about it instantly because they blasted it on the internet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah, and ever since then, uh, technology has been a real critical, critical tool. But even in social movement, it's, it's, it could have these, the same problems yeah. that it's having in society as a whole. You know, and, and that's why bringing out all these problems with, you know, uh, the fact that this is such a double-edged sword <laughs> high technology, even in movement processes, you know, that if you don't, the biggest mistake that people have made so far is that they think technology is stronger than what it really is in terms of organizing. You know, in other words, I've talked to people who have said, man, we had this meeting, it was a critical issue, you know, police brutality, brother got killed over here a couple of months ago and we were mobilizing around it. And I, I, I tried to get people to come together to talk about it, and only two people showed up. And I would say, well, how many times did you see the people that were supposed to show up? Go see them? No, man, I just emailed them. I said, well, did you at least talk to them over the phone one time? And they would say, no. I contact, I sent three emails, you know, Three emails is enough to get anybody's attention. And I, and I had to remind them that organizing is much more than just an invitation. You know, organizing is really education. You gotta educate people about why they should participate in stuff. You know, and, and mainly educate them around what that means in terms of the way society is working and how that's gonna affect their lives and their families' lives. You know, but, so yeah, you can, it is a very <coughs> positive tool to use in organizing, just like it is in production, but you can't let it dominate. The moment you let it dominate, it's like you said, the more we allow technology to dominate in this society, the less we value human participation and, and human qualities, you know, and that if we diminish those human qualities, we're, contributing to the demise of society rather than its enrichment. But yeah, it's very, very important in movement building as well. So we got about 15 more minutes, maybe yeah. 10 more minutes. Yeah. So, see, I, I'm gonna set up my last question, okay? So I think a lot about what can we do? I mean, I'm looking at all this stuff. What can we do about it? And, and I think that what we do is what we have done historically when we come up against a seemingly insurmountable problem. We really do apply our brain power to try to figure out how to make this, you know, how do we figure out 
to move forward toward the future and make that future be a vision that our kids and grandkids can all live in and prosper in and be happy in. So we have always got to bring it back to what do I and we have to do? Well, to me, one of the first things we have to do is learn as much as we can about the topic. <coughs> you know, what, uh, what are today's effects that technology is having on our society, and what is it going to look like in 10 years, just given the rate that it's being advanced right now? We have to begin to talk about that, and what is that going to mean on the future of work, the future of the job that I'm being educated to feel. You know, what does it mean about social contact with each other? And what does that mean about how we raise our families and teach our children? You know, and we have got to be able to begin to think about that. And we have got to be able to begin to influence the answers to those questions about how do we make this society, a better society, given what we know about what's going on. And to me, the only way that you can do that is by organizing. Organizing a force great enough. You know, I'll, I have this saying that I used to say all the time. You will never get what you're not organized to take. Now, what what does that mean in today's society? It means that if we're not organized to threaten um, you know, our elected officials, just one example, if, we're not, if we don't have the kind of base in our community that can say to our elected officials, look, if you don't do these three things, we're getting rid of you, period. And they believe it. You know, because we can say that, but what makes them believe it? What makes them believe it is the organizing work that we had done, and we show them that we're capable of doing what we're threatening to do. Well, that's what we got to do. That's, that's like step number one. And step number two, of course, is you have got whatever you know about and whatever you see as the future coming toward us, it's incumbent upon you to share that. You know, we have got to rekindle the socialization that sets the basis for our participation in how this world is being transformed. You know, you, we can't do it alone. And it can't be done without us. You know, and so, so to me, those are the two first steps. What do you think is some of the steps that we have to do to make, this, uh, to make the future brighter than what we you know, what we've talked about. It could be very bright or it could be very devastating. So how do we, what do we have to do to make it a brighter possibility? You got five minutes. <laughs> I think yes. Definitely what you said about sharing your two cents because a lot of people have different perspectives and different um, kind of solutions to solving a problem. And mm -hmm. I think that they should all be included because if you leave out a certain group of people, then they're going to be affected. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to incorporate everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To your point, I feel like building a lot of trust like within like seeing ourselves as a larger community and building a lot of trust within that community, I think that, 
mean, it sounds to me like in this conversation we've all kind of agreed that the way capitalism is going is not necessarily conducive to us addressing these um, challenges that uh, increasing technology, climate change, are we're being faced with. And I think a lot of fear that people have with releasing the kind of framework that we have right now is a lack of trust of, okay, if we don't have this capitalist framework, people are gonna be lazy and not do things, or, you know, the society mm -hmm. will fall apart into, into violence and anarchy because there's a lack of trust. So if we build trust with one another to say, okay, what we're doing right now is not working, and we're gonna trust one another enough to try something new, knowing that we're not gonna take advantage of each other, it won't be a free for all, we're all This side of the room. Noticing, sort of, I have not been here that long, but noticing a diff huge difference between first years and seniors here. And it seems like the one, the, the fresh off the boat kids really are in cell phone mode. Yeah. And it seems like the process of being here brings them out of that so that they're, they are doing eye contact and they are doing more conversation and they are mm -hmm. participating in discussions and things like that. Um, <coughs> <coughs> yeah. thing that obviously not everybody will have that opportunity but it's I think quite a big deal in mm -hmm. terms of noticing the difference between cell phone mode and being around other people mode and knowing when you know what's appropriate when um. yep so the good part about it the reason I'm optimistic is because the world has been here before I mean, one of the things that, you know, one of those sort of uh, underlying concepts that we are 
inundated with over and over again, and we don't even realize it most of the time, is that the concept that capitalism has always been here and will always be here is the concept that they want us to believe in. They want us to believe that no other way of organizing society has ever existed or will never exist. It's just capitalism. That's all it is. Well, when you look at history, you know better. You know that society was organized in different ways at different points in history. And that every transition, the transition from, you know, from slavery to feudalism, slavery, I don't mean US slavery, I mean slavery as a world system, from slavery to feudalism and from feudalism to capitalism had the same problems that we're talking about now in this transition that's going on now. And human beings were able to overcome those problems and figure out a way to, and each one of those organizations of society, and this to me is the most important point that makes me optimistic, was an advance over the last organization of society. No matter how resistant the feudalist was to prevent the capitalists from taking over because they wanted to hold on to the way that they organized society, history overcame them. You know, and capitalism was an advancement over feudalism. You know, under feudalism, people lived to be about 30. That was the average life expectancy. You know, now we, you know, and it was, a, so it was an advance, although, you know, people who are expressed, who are oppressed and exploited under capitalism, we always think, how could this have possibly been an advance? You know, but if I think about what I would have been under feudalism or slavery, I realize that, oh yeah, this is an advance. And so with that information in my mind, I think, okay, this looks horrible. But I believe in people. I believe in the human beings that occupy this planet that we will come together and advance society to the next level based on all this technology and all this uh, knowledge that we have accumulated over these many hundreds of years. So I'm very optimistic, and you should be too. Thank you. All right, thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens. My audio engineer is China Wilson, and this is the last time with my other audio engineer, Reagan Turner, who is graduating from Agnes Scott College. We wish her all the best. The music is by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins and additional music by Paul Myrie available on ReverbNation.com Thank you for listening. Thank you.